Tonight in our evening worship service, we're going to begin a new series on Paul's letter to the Corinthians, having said all we need to say with Romans. <laughs> Au contraire. In the last few weeks, we have been dealing with some of the most difficult, most controversial, most confounding truths of the Word of God as Paul introduced the doctrine of election and predestination in chapter 8 and has been unfolding this matter to us through His Word. And we have dealt with some very weighty and difficult things, but by comparison to what we are dealing with tonight, all of the previous have been prolegomena, simple introduction, the ABCs of the doctrine of election, and tonight we now come face to face with the most difficult aspect of this matter. So I'll be reading from chapter 9. We'll go back over verse 14. I'll start there and read through uh, verse 23. And so I'd ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion, so then it is not of him who wills, not of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say then to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And what if God, wanting to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. This is the word of God, dear friends, as difficult as it may be. 
And it has been given to us under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, who Himself is the Spirit of truth. And it is given to us not to confound us, but for our edification, for our instruction, for our training in righteousness. And here we come before the whole counsel of God. And that is also for our comfort. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, O Lord, as we seek to plumb the depths and the riches of the great mercy and glorious grace by which you have redeemed us, At the same time, we bump up against your justice, against your wrath, against your power. And though the message of your mercy is sweet to our ears, we tremble before the message of your wrath and judgment. So be patient with us, O God, tonight as we seek to understand these hard sayings that are set forth in your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. John Calvin, the French reformer who ministered most of his life in Switzerland, is often seen as the creator of the doctrine of predestination and has been demonized in every quarter for his teaching. But as I mentioned to you earlier in this study, there is nothing in Calvin on predestination that wasn't first in Martin Luther and nothing in Luther's view that was not first in Augustine. And I'm confident nothing in Augustine's view that wasn't first in the teaching of the Apostle Paul. But though Calvin's name has been linked so so frequently to this doctrine, let me pause for a moment and uh, borrow some insight from the Swiss Reformer on this matter. Calvin said, with respect to the doctrine of election and the doctrine of predestination, that it is one of the most difficult doctrines of sacred Scripture and must be handled with great care, with great conscience, uh, with great care and with great caution and with great tenderness and patience for those who struggle with it. On the one hand, Calvin said that because it is a biblical teaching, it ought not to be neglected. It's the Word of God. It's part of the truth of God. And even though we struggle with it, we ought not, therefore, to sweep it under the rug and studiously avoid it. And so, we must deal with it. But in dealing with it, Again, we have to deal with it very carefully. 
You know, frequently, because of the radio program, Renewing Your Mind, I'm invited by uh, radio stations that air that broadcast to <clears throat> do interviews on their local stations. And almost every occasion when they do that, they open up the phone lines for people to call in and ask their theological questions. I had a couple of these just this last week. And whenever they have an open line and just say, call in and ask Garcia anything you want to ask him about theology, I know before the phones start ringing what's going to be at the top of the list. It's going to be about predestination and election. And every time somebody asks me on the radio about predestination, you know what I want to say to them? I'd rather not answer that question because I'd rather say nothing than say too little. Because you just can't deal with this matter in two minutes or in five minutes. It raises too many issues and confounds us at so many points that I'd rather just pass until another time. But I just can't get away with that on the radio. Reminds me one time I was on the 700 Club when, back in the days when Ben Kinchelow was the interviewing host, and he asked me if I would do that on television for a half an hour, have open lines, and people could call in, and so they did, and at the end of the half hour, the phones were still, the, the switchboard was uh, illumined, and there was a great backlog of calls, and so he said, would you mind extending this for another half an hour? I said, no, let's go. So we did it for another half hour, and at the end of that half hour, the phone lines were still jammed, people wanting to ask their questions. And he says, well, can you continue this uh, one more half hour? And I said, yes. He said, but, he said, R.C., he said, since there's so many people standing in line, can you give really quick and brief answers so that we can answer as many people as possible. I said, sure, I'll try that. So the very next question, somebody called in, dear friend, person called in and said, can a person who commits suicide go to heaven? And I said, yes, next caller. That was way too brief for Ben Kinsel. He said, wait, 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 wait. He said, you have to take some time on, on this and explain this. Well, that's what happens when we deal with these difficult questions. They take time and caution and diligence. Now, last week, we looked at that rhetorical question that Paul raised to his readers. What then is their adikia, unrighteousness or iniquity in God? And we spent quite some time dealing with Paul's response to that, quoting Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And then we finished with the conclusion of that particular segment when Paul said, so then, that is in conclusion, it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. And that's where we were when our time elapsed last week. Let's pick it up there now tonight with verse 17. 
Or, if you prefer, we could go over to chapter 10 and neglect this altogether, but then I would be disobeying my own counsel. He quotes the Scripture again. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name be declared in all the earth. Therefore, another conclusion, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. One of the questions I get frequently on this doctrine of predestination is, do you believe in double predestination? Because there are those communions, historically, that have tried to wrestle with the teaching of Scripture and say, yes, we can't avoid the fact that the Bible teaches some doctrine of predestination, and obviously that God sovereignly elects some individuals for salvation, but we believe predestination is single. Yes, there is a definite group of people, of fallen human beings, whom God sovereignly decides to redeem. But that's as far as election goes. There's no negative side. There is no biblical doctrine of reprobation, where God eternally decrees that certain individuals from all eternity will be consigned to that category of reprobation and have as their destiny eternal damnation. And so they argue that predestination is single and single only. And here is where we face a question of what I have to call double or nothing. Unless God predestinates everybody in the world to salvation, unless God elects every single person, then you have to deal, whether you like it or not, with the question of the flip side of election which is the side of reprobation. Because if you have some of humanity who are elect, then you have others in the human race who are the non-elect. And the non-elect are those whom we call the reprobate. And so as far as I'm concerned, unless we're universalists, and we're not, there is no way to avoid the idea that there is a double aspect to divine predestination. And so I would say, of course, predestination is double. You can't avoid that with mental gymnastics. However, once we affirm double predestination, that there is not only election but also reprobation, then we have to ask the question, what kind of double predestination are we affirming? Now, dear friends, even within the communion of Reformed theology historically, there has been an ongoing debate 
about that very question. Both sides agree that predestination is double. That is, that predestination involves both election and reprobation. But they disagree in how these sides are to be understood. One view, which sometimes is called hyper-Calvinism, is the view that teaches what we call a symmetrical view of predestination, or a view of predestination that is called equal ultimacy. Now, what does that language mean? What is meant by a symmetrical view of predestination? Well, you know that something is symmetrical if both sides are equally balanced and configured. And a symmetrical view of double predestination would say this, that in the case of the elect, God from all eternity decreed their election, and in the fullness of time, He intervenes in their lives and creates, by His grace, saving faith in their hearts, so that God invades the soul of the elect and quickens him from spiritual death to spiritual life and brings him to faith in Christ and redeems him. And in a symmetrical manner, the reprobate are doomed from all eternity, and that God in the fullness of time intrudes into their lives and creates fresh evil in their souls, ensuring their ultimate reprobation and damnation. Do you understand that? That would be God works grace by direct intrusion. He works hardening or creating evil in the reprobate in an equal manner that He creates faith in the elect. That is not the orthodox Reformed doctrine of double predestination. I do not hold to that view of equal ultimacy or what is called a uh, symmetrical view of predestination. What I do hold to is called, in theological jargon, a positive-negative view of double predestination. Am I going too fast? A positive-negative view of double predestination. Reminds me of the story of the seminary student who preached his first sermon as a student at a local church and he was frightened to see that his homiletics professor was in the congregation. And this young man preached his heart out on the consequences of sin and of impenitence and of the danger of eternal fire and destruction. And so, after the service was over, he went up to his professor and he said, well, how did I do? And professor said, well, you were communicating clearly. You had a lot of passion, and people were riveted to what you were saying, but you need to learn how to be more positive 
in your preaching. So the student took it to heart, and the next Sunday he stood up before the same people and he said, last week I talked to you about the dangers of hell if you remained impenitent, and my professor cautioned me and said that I need to be more positive with you. So today the title of my sermon is, Unless You Repent, You Positively Will Go to Hell. <laughs> well, that's not what I mean here with the positive-negative schema. The positive-negative distinction in predestination is this. In the case of the elect, God positively intervenes in their lives to rescue them from their corrupt condition. The Holy Spirit changes their hearts from hearts of stone to hearts that are alive to the things of God. That's his positive intervention. In the case of the reprobate, God works negatively insofar as he passes over them. He lets them to their own devices. He does not intrude into their lives to, as I said, to create fresh evil. So you have this mass of fallen humanity, all of whom are dead in sin and trespasses. And those who receive the saving grace of God, God intervenes to rescue them from their sinful condition, and He passes over the rest. Those whom He passes over are not elect. They are the reprobate. But they are judged because of the evil that's already present in them. Now, that's the question that is in view here in this portion of Romans 9 that we're reading tonight, because notice that the first thing that Paul says in verse 17 is that the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now, this sounds, at least at first blush, pretty much like positive-positive, like equal ultimacy, doesn't it? Well, let's look at it as carefully as we can. He has already quoted the text where Moses said, Of God, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. Now he quotes in the text where God says for, to Pharaoh, for this purpose have I raised you up. Now, in this case, it's not enough simply to say that God permits Pharaoh to sin. It's not enough to say that the will of God is involved only by way of God staying out of the picture altogether and leaving Pharaoh to his own devices. That's an attractive way to handle this text, but I don't think it is sufficient to deal with what is being said. Because in this case, God says to Pharaoh, not only have I allowed you to go unrestrained and unchecked in your willful disobedience of me, but I have raised you up Another way, in fact, a better way to translate the text here is, I have appointed you. 
to this task. So that the eternal God Almighty raised Pharaoh up, sat Pharaoh in the seat of power over the Egyptians, gave him power to rule over his own people as well as over the Israelite slaves. God did that. God put him on the throne. God put him in that position of power. Why? For God's purpose of showing his own power. Listen to it again. For this very purpose I raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. You know, that happened 4,000 years ago. And here we are in Sanford, Florida, in the year of our Lord, 2006, talking about the power of God and the redemption of the people of Israel, a redeeming of a people who were all together, singly, individually, and corporately impotent against the power of Pharaoh. That the people of Israel were without power. Luther said they were machtlos, without any might. All of the power was invested in Pharaoh. And that power that was invested in Pharaoh was invested in Pharaoh by the Lord God omnipotent before whose power the power of Pharaoh was impotency. I appointed you to this position not that I can show the world how much power you have, Pharaoh, but that I can show the whole world my power. That's why I raised you up. That's why I appointed you for this task. So that I might show my power and, by extension, that my people in their powerlessness, their machlos, might know where the power of their salvation lies. It lies not in their hands, not in their running, not in their willing, but in my will and in the power of my mercy. That's why I raised you up. for my people's sake, that they may not entertain the idea ever that they saved themselves. That it was only through my power that the exodus could ever take place. Now, Paul goes on to say, finishing out the quotation from Moses, that God will have mercy upon whom He will have mercy, and those whom He will, He hardens. And again, on the surface, it sounds like there is a balance, a symmetry between God melting the hearts of the elect and calcifying the hearts of the reprobate. Now, the Bible does say 
not only here but throughout the Exodus account, that God repeatedly hardens the heart of Pharaoh. How are we to understand that? Well, we have to see a couple of things. First of all, Pharaoh was involved in this, and God was involved in this, and that in a very real sense, God was actively involved in the hardening of the heart of a human being. But the question now is, how did God harden the heart of Pharaoh? How does he harden anybody's heart? Again, not by mere permission, but by a divine decision that we read of again and again and again, particularly in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, where God, in dealing with impenitent sinners, He gives them over to their own sin. If you look in the book of Revelation and you see the decision of God at the last judgment, the final disposition of the wicked is through this very means where God said, let him who is wicked be wicked still. For God to do that, He doesn't have to create any new evil in their hearts. All God has to do to make a person more wicked than they already are is to remove his restraints from them. Because one of the great mercies that God gives to us is that He keeps us from being as sinful as we possibly could be. You know, we've talked earlier on in the book of Romans about our corrupt condition, and I mentioned that Reformed theology uses that phrase, total depravity, to describe our situation of original sin. And it it fits the acronym TULIP very nicely, but I don't like that term, total depravity, because it is so misleading. I prefer the term radical corruption, except that the initials for that (laughs) don't bode well for me. But the problem with the term total depravity, it suggests that we are as bad as we possibly could be. That is, that we are utterly depraved. But think of all of the sins that you have committed in your lifetime. You know that as bad as they were, it could have been worse. You could have committed more, and you could have committed more vicious crimes than you actually have. That could be said of Ted Bundy, Charles Manson, Adolf Hitler, anybody else. Nobody who's ever walked the face of the earth has been as sinful as they theoretically could have been, not because there resided some island of righteousness in their own souls that kept them from utter depravity, but because the restraining power of God is a bridle to us that keeps us in 
check. But when we abuse God's patience and His long-suffering, our hearts become harder and harder and harder and harder, and at any moment, God can remove the restraints and give us over to our sin. Now, from Genesis to Revelation, we see that abandoning a sinner to wickedness is not an act of unrighteousness on God's part, but it is a manifestation of His perfect justice. It's as if He's saying, you want to sin? Be my guest. Go ahead. I'm not going to strive with you anymore. I'm going to take the wraps off. I'm going to loosen the leash and let you do what you want. Because I know that the desires of your hearts are only wicked continually. So, go ahead. Now, the principle in the Bible is the giving over to sin is itself a judgment on sin, that it presupposes a prior sinful condition before God ever gives one over to it. So it's not like God was looking around Egypt for somebody that He could appoint to resist Moses, to prove to His people and to the whole world the power of God, and He found this poor, innocent, righteous young man and said, well, I'll take this beneficent and benevolent young fella who's an able administrator, and I'll put him on the seat of power over the Egyptians, and I'll make him as evil as I can make him so that I can get my will done and show my power to the whole world. That would be sheer cosmic tyranny. And that's not what God did. He hardened a man who was already hard. And so Pharaoh could not stay before God. Hey, God, what's going on here? You're punishing me for the hardness of my heart while you've been involved in in being sure that my heart gets hardened. That's not fair. Yes, it is fair. It's perfect justice for God to give an evil one over to evil. So you will say to me then, now again, Paul is expecting another objection. He's already heard the objection, is there unrighteousness of God? Now, as soon as he mentions this about hardening and about Pharaoh, he can just anticipate the objection that people are going to raise. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? I mean, God, what kind of a desperate are you that you're going to judge me for doing what comes naturally when I'm only working out this evil disposition that you fueled by hardening my heart? How can God find fault 
in that situation. Notice how Paul doesn't answer that question. Paul does not suddenly slip into Arminianism and say, well, the reason he still finds fault is because all the sin from beginning to end is all found in man, and all of the reason why some are elect and some aren't is dependent on what people do with their choices. None of that goes on here any more than it did earlier. Why does he still find fault? Who has resisted his will? Now, notice the first response is simply a moral rebuke. But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Before Paul even begins to give an answer to the question, he first of all calls his reader, calls the objector to remember who he is and to remember who God is. And he's basically saying to these people who are constantly carping against God's sovereignty, who do you think you are? Not at all unlike what happened with Job, as we've pointed out already, that when Job was the victim of so much injustice at the hands of men and of Satan, Job, who was the epitome of one who was afflicted without relief, when finally he raised his fist against heaven and shook it in the face of God, why God? God answered Job by looking at him and says, who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge. It's as if God said to Job in the midst of his misery, Job, how dare you? Job, you don't know what you're saying. Job, the very question transgresses the border of blasphemy. You're raising questions about my integrity. The question that you are raising is a question that comes not from sound counsel, but from the darkness of your own mind. And then God goes through that lengthy, relentless interrogation with Job. I'll answer your questions, but first you answer mine. Can you unbuckle the belt of Orion? Nope. Can you draw out the Leviathan and the six-pound test line? Nope. Can you send the, the bird south of the wind? No, 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 chapter after chapter. And finally Job says, Behold, I am vile. I will place my hand on my mouth. Speak no more. Now what do we learn from that? I'll tell you what we learn from that. Even when we struggle, even when we don't fully comprehend the mystery of God's sovereign, determinant will, let it not lead us to blasphemy. Let us remember whose will we're talking about. Going back to the previous question, is there unrighteousness of God? Don't even ask it. 
And at times it seems like it. But what we should understand more clearly than any other item of thought in the Christian faith is the absolute integrity and righteousness of Almighty God. Oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Again, the context. Can Pharaoh shake his fist at God and say, why have you hardened my heart? God could say to Pharaoh, I don't need to give you an explanation, Pharaoh, because when I started working on you, your heart had nothing beating of righteousness in it at all. And so I have used you, yes, I've used you, for my glorious, holy, merciful, and gracious plan of salvation. You've become an instrument in my hand. You've become putty in my hand. You've come like a piece of clay in the hand of a potter. And I assigned you to this task because of your wickedness. But doesn't, doesn't it seem to get worse than that? And he says, does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show His wrath to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory? It would be utterly irresponsible for me to tackle this the hardest portion of the text in the few minutes that we have left. But let me just set the stage for the difficulty. Some people read this text and say, okay, it's referring to God's act of creation. We're just like the potter out of some, the same lump of clay. He, he fashions a vessel fit for honor, a beautiful vase. And another one, he plans to use for some vile purpose that has no beauty, aesthetic value to it, does not he sovereignly have the right out of the same lump of clay to make a good vessel and a bad vessel? And if he makes a bad vessel and smashes it when he's all done, can the bad vessel say, why did you make me like this? All I'm doing is being what you made me to be. Is Paul saying in this text that God creates the reprobate evil and for His purpose of glory? 
And I don't have time to explain that now. I'm just going to lay that out for you now and just give you a brief hint of how I'm going to answer that question. The answer is going to be no, no, a thousand times no. Paul is not teaching here that God creates people already wicked. That flies in the face of everything the Scriptures teaches us, especially the, the record of the fall, that God creates these people good. Then they fall. And so what we'll consider when we do deal with this is if this same batch of clay is the original batch of creation, or is it the same batch of fallen, corrupt clay that the potter in this metaphor uses to shape some from that fallen, corrupt clay to be recreated in the image of Christ unto salvation, and the rest molded for the dishonor they so richly deserve. I'm only tickling you at this point tonight on that issue, but we'll have to wait, God willing, until next we gather together to wrestle with that question. For now, let's Father, we shrink in horror when we contemplate the possibility that you could well and righteously have appointed us for dishonor, that there is nothing in us that would demand that you would give us your mercy and your grace. There's nothing in us that could require that you not abandon us to our own wickedness. And the more we think about this, the more amazed we are of the sweetness of your mercy and of your grace that you would save a wretch like me when we have nothing in our hands to bring, nothing to commend us except the love of Christ. And for that, O oh God, we thank you tonight.